Greetings, this is Pastor Doug, and you are joining us for FPC Story Slam. This happened in fall of 2020. There were three of us. It was Ginny Vanell and Gene Hamilton and myself, Doug Vanell, and we gathered on Zoom. It was COVID during the time. We gathered on Zoom just to tell stories about the church, and here are some of the stories that came up. The first one is one from last Ash Wednesday before COVID began, and I will be telling it. Greetings, this is Pastor Doug, and I wanted to tell a story that happened on Ash Wednesday in 2019. And this was a time that we were doing our Lenten pilgrimage. And a Lenten pilgrimage meant that we were doing services at different churches. So the Ash Wednesday service would take place at St. James Presbyterian Church. The Monday Thursday service would take place at Cordata. At that time, it was Birchwood Presbyterian Church. And then the Good Friday Tenebrae service would take place at First Presbyterian Church. And at that point, everyone was invited to attend each of the different Presbyterian churches during the Lenten time. So we began on Ash Wednesday, and this was just about a week before Bellingham shut down, um, according to the whole, in fact, the whole country shut down according to the pandemic. Um, but we were all gathering there, and all three different churches were there, and I had a very small role. My role was just to the imposition of ashes. And so I got there early and we all were talking, we prayed together, Seth did a wonderful job and St. James has a, tends to be a little bit more liturgical, a little bit more traditional service and it was a beautiful traditional service. We were all there and then my job was just to come up at the very end and, and Seth had put the ashes in this really very tasteful and nice silver, small silver um, carrier. So a small pewter or iron. And so I grabbed it and picked it up and I just held onto it. And then people lined up and I, there was a, what we call a pray do or a little kneeling bench and people would kneel in front of me. And then I would put my finger in the ashes and I would make the sign of the cross on their forehead. And it's this very powerful moment um, when we would say, repent and believe the good news or ashes from ashes, you came to ashes, you will go. Some way of affirming our repentance and affirming that we are from dust. And so I was doing that and there was a long line of people and this silver container I was holding started to feel very warm. And I would put my finger in there and it began to feel very warm too. And then it began to feel incredibly warm. So I actually then stopped holding it from the bottom and I began to hold it from the side and I was putting my finger in and my finger began to be very warm. And I thought, well, that's interesting. And then I chanced, and there was a, still a long line of people waiting for me to put ashes on their forehead. Then I looked in the next time I put my finger in, and it was actually orange and glowing. It was actually on fire inside. And so then I began this whole thought experiment. As people kept coming up, I began to get the ashes from around the outside because it was actually burning my finger. And I would get the ashes from the outside and I stopped getting ashes every time. And I would try to make the ashes work for three or four people in a row because they were literally so hot and my finger was burning. And I would look around and I kept, as I was doing this, I was, my mind was trying to run through and say, how did this happen? And 
Sometimes, I, and what I finally figured out and thought might have happened is maybe Seth had burned the ashes just that afternoon, and then he had put them into the silver canister, and then somehow they had reignited. And I thought, well, maybe that's what happened. And I just kind of went around the outside, and finally it came to an end, and my hand was just at this point almost blistering because it was so hot. And so I, we ended, and I finally put it the burning one and I, and I made sure to put it in a place that was not that was not flammable. And I sat down and just thought, wow. And so then the thought experiments started having fun thinking, well, maybe this was a sign from the Holy Spirit. This was like Pentecost. On the Pentecost Sunday, they talked about fire coming down. And so maybe this was God setting fire to the ashes. Maybe this was a, a, a sign. This was something that God was doing. And um, afterwards, when we were all finished, I went up to Seth and I said, did you burn the ashes um, today? And he said, no, those ashes are two years old. They've been sitting in a plastic container for two years. And I thought, well, that is wild. Um, so I told him the story and he was like, I don't know. We both looked and we're like, yeah, it is it is still on fire. It is still, it is still glowing orange in there. And so the next day he sent me an email and he said he figured out what it was that his choir leader had gone through and they have a series of candles on, on the sides. And the little thing of ashes had been right next to the candles and Seth had added a little bit of oil with the ashes just to make them stick better. And the choir leader had gone and he had lit each one of the candles. And since the little, the little container of ashes looked so similar to the candle, he then lit it as well. And when he had lit it, the olive oil, not the ashes, but the olive oil in there um, had actually ignited and it just sat there and continued to burn throughout the whole time. So that's, we figured out it was, it was not a sign from God, but it was a good story to remember. And whenever I come to ashes, I always remember the time that the ashes lit back on fire as I was doing the Ash Wednesday service. And now Jean Hamilton, one of our elders, has two stories of the church in the end of the 20th century. I'm Jean Hamilton and uh, my ancestry is Scottish. And so I love being part of a church that has bagpipes and um, I almost always really enjoy them, but there was this one, one Christmas. Well, anyway, the people that were involved have either moved away or they're in heaven. So I think I can get away with telling this story now. So um, one, one Christmas Eve, um, we had a new choir director, his name was Don, and um, he really wanted to impress the pastor with a really special Christmas Eve service. That's our special. Our, our big deal at, uh, in the year. So, well, the uh, organist said she wanted to go home and have Christmas with her mother, but that was all right because Shirley was happy to take over. And then the pianist, it turned out, worked at a nursing home down in Mount Vernon doing their music. And of course they asked for him to, to play on Christmas Eve. So Don had to kind of rack his brains a little bit and he thought, aha, bagpipers. And we had a couple of them. We had George McKay and we had Ira Urig. 
And um, they both agreed to get kitted up. It takes about two hours to put on all of your uh, regalia and get ready. But the deal was that the choir was and the bagpipers were going to line up behind the doors in the narthex and stand out there and wait until Don gave the signal. And then we would march down the, come in the doors and march down the aisle. Uh, they would play Joy to the World and we would sing it in four part harmony and then the choir or the congregation would sing with us. It was gonna be spectacular, really fun. So everybody was all ready and the, the, uh, the bagpipers were at the front of the line. And so we peered through the window to see, you know, when Don would raise his, his hand and give us the signal. Well, it would have been really, would have been really slick, but the uh, pianist realized that uh, he could get away from from uh, Mount Vernon a little bit early and he came flying up the freeway and um, parked his car and dashed up the stairs and uh, sat down on the piano bench with a bulletin that somebody had handed him uh, just at the very last minute and opened it up the bulletin and looked at it and it said joy to the world and he thought ha, I've got this I know how to th that'll be easy so Don raised his hand and the pianist, you know, started with a flourish and played, started out with joy to the world. And Shirley at the organ thought, yikes, I'd better catch up with him. So she quick figured out where he was and she joined in. And the congregation as good Presbyterians do, they stood up and they began to sing, which was just lovely, except Back in the narthex, we were um, we were waiting for Don's signal, and so we um, looked through the window, and he raised his hand. Well, you don't start bagpipes um, just right off the bat; they have to do that um, funny noise that means that they're filling up their bagpipes or their pipes with air so it's and that takes a minute and um then we burst through the door and we started down the aisle singing and the bagpipes playing and joy to the world about half of a line after what the congregation was singing with the organ and all that so as we walked in it began to dawn on us that something was wrong because we were singing one thing, the congregation was singing another and the sound, the, con the combination wasn't good. So some of us had the good sense to dummy up and just walk and uh, down the aisle, which began to look like it was a quarter of a mile long. And uh, George was a canny old soul and he let the air out of his pipes and tucked them under his arm and just walked in. But Ira had spent two hours putting on his gear and he wasn't about to waste that. So I don't know if he heard what was going on or what, but he was really having the time of his life. And so he was completely oblivious to the whole thing. And he marched all the way to the front playing at the, 
you know, well, there's no volume on bagpipes except loud, and it was loud. And so here's the congregation and the organ. They finished about, you know, a line or so ahead of us. And uh, we all marched up, coming to a kind of an end. And um, by that time, we were all ready for a good laugh. But we took a look at the choir director's face and it sort of wiped the smiles off of our faces. And we all went up and sat down in the choir loft and we were just as quiet as mice. <laughs> so the rest of the service went off fine, but um, you know, um, there's certain choir members now that if you were to mention bagpipes and Christmas Eve in the same breath, they would probably um, get a little smile on their faces. And, I know I certainly do. So, My other story is about burning down the church or the times that we didn't burn down the church. Um, when First Presbyterian was built up on the hill, it was considered um, kind of out of town. It was up above uh, downtown. Not too much going on up above it. And so we've always sort of thought of ourselves as the light on the hill. And um, we've tried to be that, but uh, I don't think how many, I don't think many people realize that there were times when we would have easily become the bonfire on the hill. So um, the first time that I know of, and I wasn't around for it, but I know that when they were painting the church in the first place, they were dropping the paint rags um, on the pastor's office floor. Paint rags at that time had linseed oil in them and linseed oil combusts um, by itself. And uh, so fortunately somebody saw the smoke rising from the pile of paint rags and put it out. So that was kind of the first time. One of the times that I remember that we almost set fire to the church was uh, on another Christmas Eve. That was, um, well, it was a cold, miserable, um, icy night, snowing sideways and um, just not a time that you'd wanna be outside, but we were all inside and it was, everybody was uh, sitting there waiting and the place was packed. And um, the choir, as usual, were standing out in the narthex and our choir robes waiting for the signal to march in and sing. And we waited and we waited and we waited. And finally, after about 10 minutes, uh, there was an announcement on the microphone and our pastor said, oh, we're having just a little trouble with the electrical system. And um, the best way for us to fix it is to just uh, turn off all the lights for just a moment. So please stay in your seats and we will turn off the lights and then we'll turn them back on and um, we'll, be, we'll be fine. And sure enough, the lights went out. After a couple minutes, they went back on. We went ahead and had the service. Well, later on, we got the rest of the story. Um, the church was built uh, in 1912, at a time when Steve Bimas said electricity was still a fad. So our original electrical system wasn't um, of the very best. There weren't grounding wires on the 
knob and tube wiring and um, there was a fuse box with fuses the size of your thumb and um, also there was a breaker box and I mean we had cobbled things together for years and years but nobody had ever spent the money to actually rewire the church so it was a little bit dicey and um, just before this service started somebody walked past the fuse box and noticed smoke pouring out of it and the first thought was to empty the church and send everybody across Garden Street, but it was icy, it was awful. We knew the old people would fall down and break a hip and it, that wasn't a very happy thought. But um, Steve Bima was kind of in charge of facilities then. And so uh, the pastor consulted with him. It turned out that Steve was sitting next to somebody in the front row who a gentleman from Ohio and as it happened, the gentleman from Ohio was an electrician. And so he was invited to go back and look at the fuse box. And sure enough, there was the old cardboard fuse with smoke pouring out of it. And a, fortunately an extra fuse down there, but um, he couldn't just yank it without turning off, off the power. So he explained things to the pastor and the pastor made his announcement. If you just sit quietly for a few minutes, we'll have this fixed. And so when the lights went out, this gentleman took a flashlight and he wrapped a handkerchief around his hand and he reached in and he pulled out that fuse and replaced it with the other fuse that was there and um, closed the door to the fuse box and went back and they turned on the lights and everything worked and it was just fine so and then Doug's story about the the ashes makes me think about the time that uh, the pastor decided that um, he would as traditionally done burn the palm fronds from last Palm Sunday to make the ashes for Ash Wednesday well he decided to do it in front of the church as a you know, just to show how that was done. So he found an old spittoon and we're an old church. So there was a spittoon off somewhere, a little brass spittoon. And he put the palm fronds in the, in the spittoon. And um, he was in his black robe. He was kind of a serious guy. And our choir director, David, was quite a serious guy. And he had his black robe on too. And they stood up there and they had this spittoon and it looked you know, kind of cool. And they um, lit a match and dropped it in there. Well, palm fronds just went up like, like that. And they calmly walked out to the stairway and tore down the stairs, ran to the kitchen, grabbed a pitcher, filled it with water, ran back up the stairs and then walked back in looking perfectly calm and put out the fire, which by then the flames were up as high as the pastor's head. And um, neither of them cracked a smile, which was really unfortunate because it would have made, it was really worth a laugh, but he did put out the fire and we didn't burn down the church that time either. So that's, well, there were other times, but I won't go into those. Anyway, those are the most, the most spectacular ones that I know of, so.
Our final two stories. The first one comes from my mother, Ginny Benal, telling a story about capital improvement that happened at the beginning of the 21st century. And the second one is a practical joke that um, story that I love to tell. Enjoy. The first time I walked into FBC, remember the sense of old world beauty, the spectacular, beautiful windows, the light coming through the massive stained glass scene in the light, in the balcony the cracked walls that desperately needed to be painted and this series of memories of history and saints and sacrifice. The church building was so unlike the church building I had left in California, which was a large sanctuary with little or no adornment. And when I stood up in the pews of FPC and looked down at the well-worn wooden floor I tried to imagine all the many shoes that had occupied that very same place I was standing. Were there dainty little lace-up button-up boots from the 1912 time when the floor was shiny and new? Or maybe they were flapper shoes in 1920 or some well-worn depressed, beaten down shoes during the depression. Certainly there must've been some army boots back during World War II. Probably even some bare feet that didn't touching that floor in the 60s and the 70s, but hungry seekers came to this place, FPC, to find solace and hope and friendship and forgiveness, and most of all, the triune God. And for a hundred years, this church had welcomed seekers. But there's one problem, as lovely and as welcoming as the church was, if you were in a wheelchair or you used a walker or had any difficulty walking, then there was no way to get up the stairs to get inside the church or to go down the stairs to the basement where the little tiny inadequate bathrooms were. And that could be a problem. Mary McLeod was a stalwart supporter of the church but Mary's feet had never touched that well-worn floor because Mary was in a wheelchair. A lifetime of rheumatoid arthritis had left her body unable to walk. And so she faithfully attended church. She upheld church as a major pillar, but when she came to church, it meant somebody, some men had to carry her and her wheelchair up the stairs to the church and admit that there were no bedrooms, no bathrooms accessible for her to use. But that was about to change. 2003, first on the new pastor's list was to install uh, an elevator. Now I was really excited about this possibility for many reasons, but one of them was because that new pastor was my son and that son's father, my husband, was disabled with MS and would benefit greatly if the church had it an accessible bathroom, an accessible elevator. First though, there was the consideration of money, but miraculously a fund began to grow. This generous church pitched in a variety of ways, not just hard cash, but hard labor too. Many, many people volunteered. They volunteered their time, their abilities, 
to help with the construction. And I even helped to clean up and sweep after the day's work was done. Well, not real often, but I can remember pushing that broom. Generous people staged a craft show after church one Sunday, and we sold everything from huge yummy chocolate cakes to jewelry made from ribbons to variety of baked goods and hand-painted originals and knitted baby clothes. It was fabulous. It was all the money went to the church. But my favorite thing was some wood that had been taken out of the church as it was being redone. And the man had cut it into cute little mice that made great cutting boards. He called them his church mice. And when it was over and the elevator was installed and the balcony was reinforced and the narthex enlarged and new, beautiful and large access accessible bathrooms downstairs were built and the nursery was a little reduced but lovingly remodeled. There was this universal shared sense of participation and pride in what God had done with this noble effort. And not only did they get finished much quicker than was expected, but it cost much less money than they had planned. That's pretty much of a miracle right there. The only sorrow was that Mary McLeod did not live to see it or to use that new ramp leading up to the church, much less take advantage of the new bathrooms. But you know what, we felt her approval. We felt if Mary had been there, perhaps she was saying then, well done good and faithful church. Um, I was thinking another story uh, that happened at FBC was early on when I was here in the early 2000s. Um, I had a flair, still have a little bit of a flair for practical jokes. And for me, April 1st was a joyful day. And um, a few Sundays actually fell on April 1st, which was always fun. But on April 1st, I always felt like I had to do something that was somewhat of a practical joke. And this, this was a year that we were moving from two services all the time to having two services during the fall and the winter and the spring, but we were going to move to one service during the summer. Summertime is the sun is out and sometimes people have intentions of coming to church, but somehow along the way they pass a trail or a lake or a river and they just don't make it to church that day. And so we thought, let's move down to one service. The problem was, what do we do with the music? Because our first service was our classical service. And then our second service was our more contemporary service. And they felt very different. They all had an appreciation for very different styles and especially styles of music. And so there was really a question of how do we honor Everyone, And we could have done a variety of things. We could have done what, what we call a blanded service where everything was blanded, blended. Um, and so it would be, it would just equally offend everyone. And we thought we could do one service that was contemporary and would offend one group and then was classical the next week. But it was coming up on April 1st. And so I just thought here was a solution. So I sent out my regular email and I made it an April Fool's email. And I just at the beginning said, you know, we've been searching for what to do. And so we're going to do something different. It will be different than a classical service and it will be different than a contemporary service. And so I said, what we were going to do was a musical service. And so I, I put out a liturgy of what it would look like instead of passing the piece 
we were going to sing Getting to Know You. And we were going to begin the service with um, Oh, What a Beautiful Morning. And so I just gave a series of different musical songs that would be for the liturgy. We were going to have different Mamma Mia songs that were going to make it through there. And, um, and, I, and then at the end, I said April Fool's. Well, some people, like normally, don't read through the whole email. And so I got some very strong responses from people. And um, a few people said they were going to leave the church and were not going to come during the summer, that they would come back in the fall, but that they would have nothing to do with this musical service. And a few people um, emailed me and said, the, this is my prayer. This is my prayers answered. I cannot wait for it. So that was, that was I, I learned that I need to be a little bit more careful when it comes to my practical jokes. And I've never done the musical service, but someday I still think it might be fun. And that's it for FPST Story Slam this time. I hope we do another one soon. Blessings. <laughs>